As the offering's being finished up, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we make our way through uh, uh, this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the mid-50s A.D., uh, we are uh, in the midst of chapter 15, the glorious chapter on the truths of the resurrection. And for today's sermon, I'd like to consider verses 46 through 51. But just for context, I'll begin reading in verse 42. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust... We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we, uh, we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Beloved Lord, in response to the skeptics who would scoff at the very notion of the idea of a resurrection, we saw that the Apostle Paul actually argues that it's perfectly consistent with the way that God has revealed himself to us in his original creation. It makes logical sense that the same God who by through his power and creativity made a diversity of creatures, both great and small, all differing from each other in levels of glory. How perfectly fitting would it be for him, therefore, to have ordained another level of human existence that far outweighs the one we presently experience? Well, using the metaphor of planting a seed which must, uh, which must die in order to come to life, Paul contrasts our natural state that we presently experience with the state of glory that is to come. It's sown in weakness and dishonor and in corruption, but it is raised incorruptible. It is raised in glory. It is raised in power. 
You see, our Lord Jesus Christ at his resurrection took our humanity to the next level. He ushered in that new age of human existence when his body was glorified. It was sown a natural body, which is suited for an earthly existence, but it was raised, as Paul says, a spiritual body. And as I suggested last week, that word spiritual should be capitalized because it pertains to the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus Christ, when he was raised, his body was raised, led, and overflowing with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, his, heaven, his, uh, his spiritual body is suited to a heavenly existence. Corresponding to that event when Adam, when the Lord formed Adam of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and he became a living being. Corresponding to that, we see that the last Adam... The Lord Jesus Christ became a life-giving spirit at his resurrection. And so that's where we left off, really cutting in half Paul's logic and his thinking here for the sake of time. But picking up, we see that that the uh, Apostle Paul goes on to explain a bit more about these two different levels of human existence. And he, he teaches us that God is very concerned with order in his plan for his creation. We already saw that back in verse 23 when Paul talked about the order of events that have to do with the new creation, Christ the firstfruits, and then us at his coming who will be raised, and then comes the end. We see God's order for the end of the world, but here we see God's order for the beginning of the world. It doesn't start with a spiritual glorified existence, but rather the first thing that comes is the natural existence, then the spiritual existence. You see, Paul makes clear that Adam's natural state was a necessary first step, but it certainly wasn't the last. It's important to note here that the passage that Paul quotes from, Genesis 2-7, takes place before the fall. And so here, uh, Paul is thinking about Adam in his natural state as he was created. And he he shows here that according to God's plan, this was step number one. But it wasn't the final or last step in human existence. You see, God never intended Adam to continue in his natural state endlessly. But he held out a reward for him. And that reward is that spiritual existence, the glorified state that was held out for him. This is part and parcel of what we confess concerning the covenant of works. As we see in the Westminster Confession, chapter 7, section 2, we confess that the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity, that is his offspring, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. You see, that life that was promised to Adam is rightly considered not just endless life in his natural state, but life without, or sorry, uh, life more abundantly, the eternal, spiritual, glorified life that Christ has entered at his resurrection. But you see, heaven must be earned. 
Even apart from the fall, heaven was the goal, but heaven must be earned. Adam Adam had to do the works that God had commanded him before then entering into the rest that God held out for him and for his descendants. And so that's why it's so important to keep in mind this order. The natural comes first and then the spiritual, but somebody somebody needs to take us to that next level of existence. Boys and girls, when I was your age, I played a video game called Super Mario Brothers. And when you start off playing Super Mario Brothers, you are little Mario, and you can't do much. Except when you hit one of the the question mark boxes and a mushroom comes out, what happens? You take little Mario to a Super Mario existence. You grow in stature and in size, and you can do more. That's kind of what Paul's saying here with the Lord Jesus Christ. At his, at his resurrection, he took our humanity to that next level, to the glorified state that we all are looking forward to. But before we talk more about Christ's glorified state, let's go back and focus upon Adam's natural state as Paul explains it a bit more in verse 47. He, he elaborates on Adam's natural state by highlighting what it is that he was made out of. And here he's alluding to that first part of Genesis 2-7, where it says that God created Adam out of the dust of the ground. And so what does Paul call him? He calls him the dusty man. The first man, Adam, was made out of the dust of the ground. Therefore, he's dusty. He's earthy. It's interesting that we rightly affirm the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. That is, in the beginning, God created all things out of nothing by the very word of his power. But it's also important to appreciate the fact that when God created all things, when he spoke the worlds into existence, he was then pleased in his creative power to use those, that freshly created world to then make more things. And so we see, for example, him say, let the earth sprout forth vegetation. You see, he's using the world to create more. And then he says, let the earth bring forth the animals. And then we see in that special creative act of God that he got down and he got his hands dirty. Putting his hands into the dust of the ground and creating one in his own image. He created Adam out of the dust. And like Adam, who is a, uh, like Adam, who was created out of the dust of the ground, so also we, those of us who are of the dust, naturally descending, uh, descending from him, are dependent upon the earth for our very existence. As carbon-based life forms, we need the earth. We're dependent upon the earth. I think we forget that so much in our supermarket age. You say, well, I'm not dependent on the earth. I, I go to Whole Foods to get my organic uh, produce. And maybe if you're not that type of person, maybe you're the type of person who goes to Carl's Jr. and gets your burger with no lettuce. Well, where did that cow get its, his energy? We're dependent on the ground. Everything comes out of the earth. Why? Because we're earthy people. We're of the dust. This is the way that God created us in the very beginning, dependent upon his good earth, which was supposed to originally sprout forth all types of food that are good for eating. This is in keeping with our natural state, which is suited to an earthly existence. And yet, 
it is susceptible to change. It is susceptible to change. Even Adam, when he was created good in the beginning, very good and righteous, he was also changeable. He was able to sin, but he was able not to sin. And therefore, in that sense, he was corruptible. He had not yet been confirmed in a state of glory and righteousness, but he had his choice before him. Well, we know the rest of the story. We know that by his fall, Adam sealed both his and our fate, bringing a curse upon the ground, the very thing that we are dependent upon for our existence. Which means that the earth will not just automatically sprout forth vegetation, but we need to work it by the sweat of our brow. Adam ushered in by his fall a a life of painful toil and futility, which ultimately succumbs, which will succumb to death and a returning to the ground from which we came. A reversal of God's created act, taking life from the dust We, because of the fall, return to the dust. And this is what God says. It's part of the curse. He says, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is what Paul means when he talks about bearing the image of the man of dust. Because after his fall, even though Adam retained, uh, in in some sense, the, the image of God in him, he passed on that marred and fallen image to his son. In an often overlooked passage in Genesis chapter 5, we read that when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. And all of us who come from Adam through ordinary generation bear that image of the man of dust. We are dusty, we are earthy, we are dependent upon the earth, and we are therefore susceptible to change and corruption, weakness, and dishonor. Well, in stark contrast to the first man, the earthy man of the ground, we have the second man, in verse 47, Who is from heaven? That is Christ, both the second and the last Adam. Now, when Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam, who is from heaven, the man from heaven, it would be very easy for us to think that Paul is referring to Christ's pre-existence. That is his pre-incarnate state as the eternal son of God. And in that sense, it is true. And and Scripture even does speak of the one who came down from heaven, who took on flesh and dwelt among us. But that's not what Paul is referring to when he calls Christ the second man, the man from heaven. Because clearly he has Jesus's, not his incarnation, not his birth in Bethlehem, but his resurrection in mind. You see, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Paul tells us that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He says that in Romans 8.3. And so when Paul says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, he says that Christ's body that he got of the Virgin Mary was a natural existence, susceptible to weakness, suffering, and death itself. And so Jesus Christ, when he was born, he had a natural body. 
that was like us in every respect, sin accepted. And that very same human nature that he received of the Virgin Mary, which lived a life of suffering and obedience, which grew tired and hungry, which was beaten and humiliated and ultimately crucified, which was laid in the tomb and rested on the Sabbath day, is the very same body that was raised and glorified by the power of the Holy Spirit. That very same body that was taken then to the next level of human existence, this glorified spiritual, holy spiritual body. See, at his resurrection, Christ's humanity was made fit for a heavenly existence, one that is fit to dwell in the presence of a thrice holy God. And at his, at his ascension, he took our humanity and sat it down at the right hand of God, which is why he is rightly called the man of heaven. Jesus Christ became the man of heaven when he took our humanity to heaven. In the 60s, we put a man on the moon, which is pretty impressive, especially considering how primitive their computer technology was back in 1969 to consider that they were able to successfully have a moon landing. Well, as impressive as a moon landing is, and even as impressive as a Mars, uh, Mars landing may be in the future, nothing compares to the fact that Christ took our humanity to heaven itself. And because Jesus is our head now... Because our head is now the heavenly man, we who are united to him by faith, who have been given the Holy Spirit as a seal and guarantee of our salvation, are also rightly considered heavenly people. Do you notice how Paul characterizes us in the second half of verse 48? As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. You are rightly considered citizens of heaven itself even in your present state. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You see, Paul wrote that to the Philippians, and Philippi, like the city of Corinth, was a Roman colony. Which means that if you were a citizen of Philippi or a citizen of Corinth, you were rightly considered a citizen of Rome itself. And so they knew what it was like to be a citizen of a faraway country. And that's why Paul can can, can say, your citizenship is not here on earth. Your ultimate citizenship is in heaven from which we await our Savior. And as surely... As we have borne the image of the man of dust, as as surely as you presently have this dusty, earthly existence dependent upon the earth, susceptible to change, and if the Lord should should tarry, returning to the dust of the earth, so also we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism can take all of these ideas and summarize them so beautifully in, in the answer to question 49, which, which asks, how does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? Always very practical. What benefit, what comfort do we derive from these doctrines? Well, notice how it answers. It says, first, 
He is our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ our head will take us, his members, up to himself. And third, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge by whose power we seek not earthly things, but the things that are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. You see, we have our flesh in heaven, and that is a guarantee that he will one day come and take us to himself and glorify us together with him. And in the meantime, he's given us his spirit as an earnest, as a pledge, as a guarantee that he will come and do that. Well, getting back to our passage, we see in verse 50, Paul tell us a very important point that I think he's been building to as he's been contrasting our natural state with the glorified spiritual state, which will come uh, in the future when he tells us that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, again, it's important to note that Paul is not denying the fact that our glorified state will be a physical existence. We already cleared that up when we, when we explained what he meant by spiritual body. He's not saying an ethereal body. He's not saying we're going to be like Casper, the friendly ghost who can pass through walls. No, our body will be like the glorified body of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in Luke 24 says, touch me and feel me. I have flesh and bone. I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. Our existence will be physical. And so if that's the case, then what does Paul mean when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God? Well, Paul's using this phrase, flesh and blood, which we still use today, as a stock phrase which refers to humanity in its weakness and frailty. And we often say, after all, I'm just flesh and blood. Here he's referring to our natural state, our present state, which is fallen and weak, and, uh, or even apart from being fallen, is weak and susceptible to change. He's referring to our natural existence. What he's saying is that we, as we presently are, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And notice that he says cannot. I don't know how many of you had smart aleck teachers like I did when I was a little kid, and I raised my hand, and I said, teacher, teacher, can I go to the bathroom? And they said, well, I'm sure you can, Johnny, but don't you mean to ask May? I go to the bathroom. This is a question of permission versus ability. Paul's referring to ability. We in our natural state are not fit to dwell in the presence of God. We need to be glorified together with Christ. It would be like trying to go into outer space without a spacesuit. And yet even more so because we're referring to heaven itself. Well, why is that the case? Well, because our present existence is corruptible. Not just corrupted, but corruptible. And that's impossible for something that is corruptible to inherit something incorruptible. You see, to inherit the kingdom of God is to come into full possession of something. He's referring to what will happen when Christ Jesus comes and he delivers the kingdom over to his God and his Father. It is impossible for something that is corrupted and corruptible to inherit heaven itself. Why? Because heaven will be a confirmed state of holiness and of glory. 
You see, our present existence, even when things are going great, we know that they're going to change. But that's not how it is in heaven. In heaven, you are confirmed in righteousness and in glory. That's why something that's corruptible or changeable cannot inherit. So that ushers into Paul telling us a mystery in verse 51. Now, boys and girls, a mystery in the New Testament sense isn't something that's mysterious. Rather, when Paul talks about a mystery... He's referring to something that is concealed in the Old Testament, but revealed in the New. And so for us as New Covenant believers, mysteries shouldn't be mysterious. It's just something that was mysterious and hidden to the Old Testament saints, but now is being made known to us and revealed to us. See, we know the Old Testament spoke about the resurrection at the last day. You can read, for example, in Isaiah 26, 19, or Daniel chapter 12, it clearly speaks of the resurrection at the last day. That's why uh, uh, pious Jews and faithful Jews in the first century, like Martha, believed in the resurrection. And yet Paul here, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, peels the curtain back, back a bit more to reveal something even greater. He reveals the fact that not All who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will ultimately have to face death. That's what he means when he says, we shall not all sleep. He's referring to death for the believer. Not every believer will actually have to die. Why? Well, because of the Lord's return. The Lord will come back one day. When? We don't know. It could be two minutes from now. It could be 2,000 years from now. But... In that time, there will be those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so while not all believers will ultimately have to face the inevitability of death, not all of us will sleep, Paul says. The important point is that we will all be changed. Not just those who have died, But even those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord must be changed. And so resurrection is much more than just coming back to life from death. It involves a changing. It involves a transformation from one level of existence to the ultimate heavenly level of existence. We all must be changed into the image of the man of heaven. You see, this is the vital aspect of the good news of the gospel that some in Corinth were denying. They were not denying the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they were denying the truth that at the last day, we as believers will be raised and transformed into the image of Christ. They were saying that this is it. This is your salvation. Jesus died for your sins. You have the Holy Spirit. And this is all we should expect. Paul says, you are denying the gospel. You, in that scenario, only have half of a savior. Jesus isn't done with us yet. He's given us his spirit. He's sanctifying us by his spirit. But most importantly, he will glorify us at the last day by his spirit. That's the fullness of salvation that we are still looking forward to. It is an absolute requirement for any to inherit the kingdom of God.
But even as Paul makes the point that it is absolutely necessary for us to be glorified, he also makes the point that it is absolutely certain that we will be glorified. In verse 49 again, he says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust. So look at yourself. Consider your, your, your present circumstances. Consider the fact that things change. That you are sown in corruption. That you're sown in weakness. You're sown in dishonor. You're sown in natural body. If that's true, it is also certainly true that you will be raised in glory and in power and and incorruptible through the power of the Holy Spirit. May God grant to us faith to believe that is promised to us in all of the gospel. And may he grant to us hearts of gratitude as we live as sojourners and exiles in this present evil age. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you were pleased in the fullness of time to be born of woman, to be born under the law, to come in the likeness of sinful flesh, like us in all things, sin accepted. And you did that in order to live a life of suffering and obedience for us, culminating in the obedience of death on the cross. And yet, O Lord, by your death, by your perfect life, you overcame death and have conquered that last enemy and lord have given us your spirit as a seal and pledge that you one day will come and glorify us together with yourself thank you for this blessed hope and this living hope that we have even now and we do pray lord even as we groan in these earthly bodies we pray that you would grant to us strength to live lives that are worthy of the calling with which we have been called may we seek things which are above where you are seated at the right hand of god And we ask this in your name. Amen.